What's up, everybody? Thanks again for tuning in to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. This is Kyle Kimbrell. I'm going to play host today for you because I've got Johnny Owens on here as a guest for the second time now. He's been a guest on his own podcast. That's a thing. If you didn't know, now you know. We've also got Larry Kahalen on here, and we are going to discuss their contributions to the PACER Project. If you don't know what the PACER Project is, it stands for Post-Acute COVID Exercise Rehabilitation Project. It was organized by the Cardiovascular and Pulmonary Section of the APTA, as well as the Acute Care Section of the APTA. And what those two groups have done is assemble some clinician experts to provide some learning opportunities for you for free. All you have to do is go over to the YouTube channel for the Cardiovascular and Pulmonary Section, or you can go to the APTA Learning Center and you can watch these videos, answer some questions, and get free CEUs. We'll have links to both of those in our show notes. These videos address how one might perform rehab after someone has had COVID. So tackling a number of different angles regarding persons following infection with this coronavirus and the disease process that follows that. So we hope you enjoy Larry and Johnny's contributions to that. And we also hope you'll take the time to watch all of those videos because it's just a really great resource and it's free. I mean, who doesn't love free CEUs? Especially right now when we're all sitting at home and not necessarily having as much fun getting out to these courses. But speaking of courses, we will be getting up and going very soon. We've got open courses scheduled for the middle of July, beginning in Kansas City, Kansas, and Dallas, Texas on July 18th. You can find us. Then in Santa Barbara on July 25th, Falls Church, Virginia, and Memphis, Tennessee on August 1st, Miami, Florida, August 8th, Golden, Colorado, August 15th, and then finishing up August, we're in Austin, Texas, the home of just about the best barbecue you'll ever taste in your entire life. Sorry, Kansas City people, but it's just the way it is. So we hope to catch you at our courses soon if you haven't already been to those. Hope you enjoy this podcast, and let's get this thing going. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. All right, and welcome back to another installment in the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. This is Kyle Kimbrell, and uh, I've got two very special guests, one who is no stranger to you and Johnny Owens, and Mr. Larry Kahalen from University of Miami. Larry, when I say Miami, I have to like slow everything down because every time I reference y'all's work in our courses, I end up saying Miami. I'm going too fast and I, I, get, I don't know what happens. This weird alliteration thing goes, goes down in my head. So um, from University of Miami, Larry Kahalen, Larry and Johnny both did Pacer projects um, that are out now. Johnny's came out last week. We got that bad boy out there. And Larry, yours came out, what, two, three weeks ago, I think? Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Um, so Larry's is on inspiratory and expiratory muscle training. We want to talk a little bit about that today and how that might uh, really begin impacting many of our listeners um, and certainly just 
various different rehab professionals kind of the world over uh, and in all kind of different settings. And then we also want to talk a bit about Johnny's Pacer project and, and how those two worlds meet. We just had a fun convo discussing all this sort of off air. So we'll uh, just try to repeat all that on air because it was really good just kind of hearing these, these guys' bright minds and where they've, these wormholes that they've gone down um, during our COVID, our COVID lockdown. Um, Larry, why don't you just, we've had you on before, but maybe just tell us a little bit about where you are, what you do, that kind of, that kind of fun stuff. Sure, sure. Um, I'm here at the University of Miami, or Miami, um, <laughs> and um, I've been here, oh, just about 10 years. Um, moved here from Boston, where I lived for about 25 years, and um, have been very, very happy here in Miami working with um, my colleagues, and uh, it's exactly how I, I met Johnny as well. He came here uh, years ago um, when he was just a young boy and uh, gave us uh, instructions on how to do BFR. And I went to sort of just, you know, ask this guy questions and, you know, figure out, is there really something to this? And uh, by the time uh, we finished, we actually had lunch at a local brew pub, and uh, we probably went back um, there for dinner and probably didn't leave until midnight. Um, we were not drinking. We were just actually talking about research and okay, research you know, that's really truthful, at least on the podcast, Larry. <laughs> Sorry. It's all good. That's too funny. <laughs> Um, but uh, to make a long story short, um, it's uh, a little bit of the, the care, the practice I do is um, looking at people uh, with breathing problems, oftentimes individuals with heart and lung disease, but we've been looking at athletes as well and trying to see if there is a way that we can improve performance uh, in those individuals who have disease and in those individuals who actually um, our athletes and just trying to excel in, in their performance by improving their inspiratory, expiratory work, endurance, power, strength, whatever it is we're trying to, to achieve. That's cool. Um, and so, you know, like in my head, I, and, and put me in my place, Larry, but this is kind of where I go. I'm just like, okay, we'll just work a little bit harder. You're, you'll start breathing more and, and that'll, and that'll do it. Why, why wouldn't that, why wouldn't that work? And, and um, it, it will, work. am I wrong? No, it, it will work to some degree, but I think, you know, just like with BFR, and um, I think I'm really happy that before we did start this podcast, um, you asked, uh, are there some similarities between BFR and with inspiratory or expiratory muscle training? I think there definitely are, and I'll try to talk about some of those. But I think um, the question that you asked uh, in regards to just breathing heavy and trying to improve respiratory performance um, you need a workload. You need a resistance that that muscle, the muscle group, whether it's the inspiratory or expiratory muscles or both, that they need to work against. And uh, by providing an, a more optimal workload, you're going to hopefully strengthen and maybe improve the endurance and power uh, of those particular muscles and allow the person to hopefully ventilate a little bit better. And maybe that will slow their respiratory rate down if they started, for the most part, like a person with COVID-19 with a rapid respiratory rate and allow them to have a more comfortable breathing that would hopefully allow them for better oxygenation, removal of carbon dioxide, and just better metabolic activity overall. Cool, very, very cool. So I, I know one of the things you, you touched on in your, your talk was you went through a few different devices it looked like um, that, that people might, might use. And I know you've done a decent amount of work in that, 
in that space. So I wonder, you know, we had kind of had that talk about I me mean, trying to make this practical and, you know, so many of our listeners hear inspiratory, expiratory muscles and their eyes kind of glaze over, much like when we get kind of talking into the weeds on BFR sometimes. Um, but, you know, I guess my question would be, okay, well, I think of muscle, regardless, whether it's cardiac muscle, uh, endothelial muscle, um, the diaphragm, I, I, we know muscle needs some kind of a stress to adapt. It, you, it has to be provided with that. And if it doesn't, and, and that, that, that's a two-way street, right? Because if we remove stress, there's an adaptation that occurs as well. And so how, how would you go about determining, say, the right load to use with some inspiratory muscle training? Yeah, no, great question. Um, you would use a manometer, uh, and that manometer would hopefully provide you with a maximal inspiratory or expiratory pressure. Um, some of these manometers are expensive, about $1,000. So back in the day, my colleagues and I just took a regular blood pressure cuff, the Spigma manometer from a blood pressure cuff, removed the, the rubber tubing, and then put some oxygen tubing onto that particular uh, the manometer, the spigma manometer, and then attach that particular oxygen tubing to a mouthpiece. Um, that allows the person to use the spigma manometer as a manometer to measure inspiratory and or expiratory pressures. So um, you can get a maximal pressure. Um, you then can train the person at a percentage of that maximal pressure. And you can even use that spigma manometer as a training device. Um, and there really have been a good number of studies, both in healthy individuals and individuals with disease, where if we improve, like you said, the strength, the endurance, the power of the respiratory muscles, performance does seem to improve, um, especially in less elite athletes. Uh, the more elite, you're not going to get the same adaptations very likely because they are at that elite level. But I think overall, if you were to use a spigma manometer, you could test and train but there are lots of other devices that are available that are on the market. Um, and in the PACER presentation, I did try to make it practical because it is expensive to buy some of these testing devices, but um, you don't need them. They're nice to have. But um, the other thing with COVID-19 is, you know, the, the whole virus and the contamination of one piece of the equipment being used by another person. So yeah. one thing I tried to stress was the importance of maybe single patient use. And um, you could buy a spigma manometer blood pressure cuff pretty cheaply at a CVS or a Walgreens. And then uh, I tried to outline how you could just take a simple piece of tubing and attach it to a mouthpiece and do some of those same measurements and or training methods. Yeah. I like the term less elite athlete, I think is what you said. I feel like yeah, I didn't want to say it. <laughs> I feel like uh, I fall into that category for sure. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of curious too, just in thinking, you know, just relating back to skeletal muscle, because it's where my head goes. I, I'm supposing that there are certain times where doing a, like a maximal exertion might not be indicated, might, you might need some sort of a surrogate. Is that a, is it like, for example, in orthopedics, we'll use like a 10 rep max versus a one rep max because maybe we have some surgical precaution or there might be some fear on the part of the patient, that kind of thing. Maybe you have a lack of equipment. Um, is there, is, is there a surrogate that you could use to kind of run an end around if you had to? In terms of obtaining a maximal. Uh -huh. maximal yeah. In terms of, yeah. Um, I, I think it's, it's a great question. Um, yeah. I, I think if you're really going to hopefully, stress the person in terms of their 
respiratory muscles, and, and keep in mind the respiratory muscles are skeletal muscle too. Um, they adapt differently to training in some respects and to uh, disuse. Um, and I'll talk about that just briefly. And if you can, just remind me, because I think it's an important concept to think about for yeah, COVID patients also. Yep. But um, I think one thing that you can do with some of the testing and training devices, or training devices for the most part, is you can actually dial in a certain amount of resistance that's identified on the device itself or in a table where we know that if a person, because of their age and gender and their health or not, we can identify that their strength is probably about 50 centimeters of water. And therefore, we might want to train them then at half of that, 25 centimeters of water, and we can dial that in on the device without actually even measuring the, uh, the maximal pressure. Because like you said, there may be a condition, maybe a person had a sternotomy, and we don't want them to do a maximal inspiratory effort or expiratory effort. And um, at that point in time, we may just try to give them a low load. And uh, we know that let's say their maximal pressure maybe before the surgery was this, and now we can train them at a lower percentage uh, of that and not have the pain or the other problems that could occur with excessive inspiratory efforts. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Is there is there a situation where you might, um, like if let's suppose we have someone post-sternotomy or, or some sort of something like that ends up in like an outpatient clinic and they just walk in and, and the therapist is like, man, I'm, this, I'm typically total knee boy. And now I've, I've got this person. Um, how, might, how might you kind of suggest that person goes about doing some sort of a baseline assessment and, and, and determining those things for them if they're not, if they're not given anything from their, um, hopefully their, their physical therapy clinicians that they're working with in the hospital? Is, yeah. there, is there some advice you would have there? Yeah, great question. I think um, a couple things you could do very simply before you try to implement any kind of training or testing would be to you know find out how far or how long it's been, how far from the surgery uh, has it been, and you know were there any complications, and then just identify and looking at the the actual incision, just like you might with a person who had an ACL repair or whatever else. Um, if the incision looks good, um, while you're looking at the incision, hopefully the person has their shirt off or some degree, you can assess their breathing. Are they actually demonstrating uh, a descent of the diaphragm? Do they have a little bit of movement, lateral costal area? Um, are they using mostly the upper chest? And if you identify some of these problems, you might actually be able to facilitate just better breathing. A lot of patients, they still may have a little bit of pain. They might breathe with a greater respiratory rate because they can't get the full volume of air in. So um, just by trying to get them to slow down or maybe focus on learning how to breathe again, uh, I think you can just do that. And then um, if the person is healthy and you, you have a manometer sitting around, you could do a, a, a measurement based upon how long it has been. And we had a discussion yesterday actually with a group uh, of uh, DPT students doing some research, trying to identify if you're gonna do any kind of testing after a sternotomy or any kind of surgical incision on the thorax, how long would you wait? And uh, we came to a consensus of maybe four to six weeks based upon the physician who may have been you know, in there and knew what was going on or to just get a, a feel for the patient and their symptoms as well. That's great. Um, I feel like we've made Johnny sit there quiet for I know. long oh. enough. Now we've just been kind of shutting him out of the conversation. We should, we should include him. It is his podcast after all, you know? Yeah. So we, <laughs> we I'm, I'm, taking the, I'm taking this all in, man. This is <laughs> He's good. just digesting. And there's a, there's quite a few things I want to come back to Larry, but Johnny, um, you know, you did the, the blood flow restriction podcast 
or excuse me, Pacer project, um, which was cool. Um, and I was of course around for all that. So I know what went down and, and, and how, how challenging it was for both you and Larry to just talk into a computer with um, either only me or, or no one on the other end of that. Um, but, but you've been working on this really, I mean, since the end of March, you've been too, too long man. To, <laughs> to figure out where, where to go with this. Cause it's, you know, and I think we should kind of, I don't know, say a disclaimer, but is say, you know, it's, it's a, it's a lot of theory and it's a lot of kind of taken what we feel like we've got an idea about. And in some cases know about BFR and exercise and trying to kind of translate that to what our colleagues might be seeing in clinic coming up and, and where things might kind of go in the future. So you want to just maybe kind of take us down the road of where you started and kind of how yeah. you ended up, where you ended up. So when I get into these wormholes on something like this, it's, it's like a deep, dark place. And my wife was like, will you just get this thing done? Because um, I, I just bury myself in way too many papers and I can't stop thinking about it. And, and you guys know, I'm, you know, I was probably halfway around um, Kyle and, and our, and our team at ORS, you know, on, on these calls, I'm just like, all right, let's get this over with. I got to get back to working on Pacer and I'm thinking about Pacer and I got to call someone today and talk to them about Pacer, you know, I mean, Larry and I are like calling some, some guys over in Zurich to see if we can get initial data from them and, and stuff like that. Um, but here's what I, I think was really interesting and, and what's timely on it is, you know, we've really made this shift um, over the last few years of, okay, blood flow restriction, we see the application in the orthopedic world and the application for, for muscle. And then we're like, okay, there's also this application for bone. And then there's this application for tendon. But I, I've really been deep, deep, deep into this population that we're talking about here with Pacer. And um, things just kind of timely were coming out perfectly, I think, to help with this talk. Um, and also, you know, we're we got, we got work going on with Brian Irving at LSU, looking at mitochondrial respiration. And, you know, I've talked a lot with him and he's helped me understand like what hypoxia would do for that. Um, the, the Germans and the German diabetes center, we're looking at, you know, how BFR can maybe lower insulin levels and went down a little a kind of deep dive with that. And then Dr. Pesta's lab, Alex Franz over in Germany is doing his peripheral artillery's work that we're working with. Jamie Burr's got his reactive oxygen species stuff. And then real timely, um, Kyle Hackney's group put out their paper on ACE2 um, last year at conference, and we've had it and been waiting for him to, to get it out in his group. And that came out and, and really fit perfectly into this whole oxidative stress, which I think we're going to go into later. And then Dr. Annie Bain's Parkinson's paper came out looking at the, the endothelium. So having kind of all of that in my mind, and we've been working on it and seeing now where this application could go, um, I think that's why I really wanted to get it right. Um, I didn't want to do it too quick because as soon as I was going down, like it's all respiratory, it was, let's look at the lungs, you know, this is, this is a problem with the lungs and it's going to be COPD and all of that. It, it wasn't anymore. It changed to, it was a problem with the endothelium. It really looks like, and the people who took the biggest hit and another paper just came out um, really, really large when I looked at it were the oxidative stressed out individuals, the diabetics, the, the cardiovascular disease folks, the obese patients. And so I think us waiting and, and learning more and more about this, it started to fit even better into where we have been going over the last couple of years with blood flow restriction. Um, so 
that's the wormhole and, and I think we can go deeper into it. You know, a lot of a lot yeah. of drinking. You know that drinking Larry did said we didn't do in Miami, I've been doing it over the last few months. You like may, getting angry, <laughs> yelling at the computer. Um, you've even you've Kyle. been developing your beer load. <laughs> yeah. And I guess to, in case people don't know, you know, it's not like Pacers, it's YouTube sensation or anything, but but what Pacer <laughs> <laughs> My kids are not, you know, if it was, if we could work it into I'm Roblox, <laughs> yeah, if we get into Roblox, my daughters would be all about it. You know, I got my Pacer <laughs> monkey yesterday for my Roblox, um, but Pacer is, um, what is it? The post-acute COVID exercise rehab um, project. And, and basically um, Larry's the section he's involved in the, the cardiovascular and pulmonary section, part of the American physical therapy association um, said, let's get kind of experts together and put at least um, some stuff out there for, for the, the community to digest that typically maybe don't see these post-intensive care syndrome patients or intensive care patients at all. And also what can we as a rehab community start to understand about COVID and physical therapy. And so it's, it's just a, a ton of YouTube videos. You can get CME credit for it if you go to the APTA Learning Center and if you're an APTA member. Um, and so I, you know, I think it's one of those things that, it, you know, hopefully it's kind of like evergreen. COVID's not going away. And even if something, if this does go away, these post-intensive care syndrome patients and the oxidative stress patients, they are not going away. And those are the ones that, man, I, I think if you just listen to, just listen to mine and Larry's talk. <laughs> but go. I mean, I, I just say it, um, that's where I, we, I, I think it, it can be really valuable to make us rethink how we're going at those types of individuals. There's a lot more of them than there are ACLs, big time. Yeah. And they, they could really probably use our help a lot more than, yeah. than you know, hey, I could get this guy to squat on a freaking Swiss ball touching his nose or whatever, you know, so. But it's we won't go down that road. Phenomenon. Yeah. So I, I will say I, I broke my talk into two parts um, or mine and, and Larry and I did it together. Um, I, I did all the talking, um, which is maybe good or bad. So, but the way we, we broke it down was to look at how blood flow restriction could work for the post-intensive care syndrome patient. And there's a lot of those. And so we, we all think of the ICU COVID patients because that's all in our face right now. But there's, there's greater than 4 million post-intensive care syndrome patients a year. And, and those are people who come out of intensive care and they have severe disability. And, and that severe disability is physical impairments, which is what we're supposed to address. Strength, they have pain, uh, they have decreased quality of life and decreased ADLs. Um, and, and there's a big systematic meta-analysis that basically it, it kind of said rehab doesn't look like it's doing that great with these people. I, I, I wrote it down. Rehab following ICU discharge makes little to no difference in quality of life or mortality in these post-ventilatory fixed patients. That's like an ouch when you have a giant yeah. systematic meta-analysis says, yeah, what you guys doing doesn't really matter or help. And, and so for the PICS patient, I think it's pretty obvious they get out, they're so disabled, they, you know, they can hardly do anything. So just getting them to walk or do sit the stands is you got limited time. You just got to do what you can do to make them safe and get home and hope that they can do okay. And it's, it's you know, I don't want to slam therapists here with it, but it, you just can only do what you can work with. But as we know, with, yeah. with blood flow restriction, well, then, then let's do those low level exercises with the tourniquet. Yeah. And 
Let's put them on a bike. Bang. Let's add some neuromuscular stuff. Yeah, put them on a bike. Have them Let's walk. Do these things the, that we know can sniff. cause change. Yeah, in the sniff unit, in the acute yeah. care setting. Um, and, and so then I think we're going to get actual, a real effect from what we're able to do with them. And, and so I, I really want to task our association, our community that let's, let's really look at something like this, you know, cause there's a, there was this big picks paper that came out in the PT journal a month or so ago. And it was like, okay, when these patients get out, they need to do 70% of one RM, um, ACSM guideline lifting and they need to do high intensity interval training. It's like, give me, give me a break. You know, that, yeah. that sounds great. We should say that, but there ain't no way in hell. <laughs> it's not going to yeah. happen. Even if the patients wanted to try and do it, I think most therapists would be scared out of their mind and they should be. Those patients right. are not ready for that capacity. So this was a workaround. Yeah. Very good point. The second piece then is where I got really, cause that's easy. You know, if you're to ask me like, how would you do this in an acute setting with someone that was, you know, deconditioned, I, I could talk to you all day about that. And I think anyone that listens to us or follows us is like, okay, you know, this is, this is like a no brainer. Give me, give me a tourniquet and I'll, I'll, I'll show you what we can do. But then it was like, what about this COVID thing? Is there anything with putting someone into hypoxia? We use high levels of hypoxia um, the way we do it. Um, is that making things better or making things worse? And so, you know, again, Kyle, like I said, some of this was leaps. Some of this, I think, actually has some good theory behind it and actually has some papers behind it. But yeah. if, if you let me talk about the pathophysiology real quick, it, there's these, the ACE2 receptor is what the virus attacks. And so the ACE2 receptor fits perfectly into COVID-19 and COVID-19 starts as a disease of the lungs. And so the virus comes in, it goes in the lower lung fields and it attaches to the ACE2 receptor. And then once it's there, it basically replicates itself within the cell through that ACE2. It destroys the ACE2, basically hijacks it and crushes it. And then it allows more viral load to come out from the cell and they go out searching for more ACE2. And then they also look to be expelled out of your body to go someone else. The problem was, when you started looking at all the people that were dying from this and getting hospitalized, the numbers in New York, especially, and now we're getting them from all the other countries for COPD and asthma and ARDS and things like that. Those folks, they were really getting hospitalized and dying at not much different rates than they normally do. But then we were seeing, man, these obese people, the diabetics, the cardiovascular disease, they were the ones that were getting hospitalized and they were the ones that were dying at a super high rate. And then we started seeing, these people all have blood clots, you know, they're opening a lung field and they're like, instead of just seeing like Frank pneumonia, they're seeing blood clots everywhere and people are getting strokes and you, you know, the, the poor actor, the, you know, the Broadway actor who had to have his leg amputated because he was clotting out in his leg. When you start seeing blood clots, then it's an endothelial problem. It's not a lung problem anymore. This is a disease of the endothelium because when the endothelium of the artery gets damaged, the artery wants to repair itself. And that's where you see that ACE2 gets hijacked on the endothelium because the endothelium of the arteries is lined with ACE2 receptors. And so when it gets damaged by COVID, then von Willebrand factor comes out, factor eight comes out and you start to get clotting that happens. And so now we are all of a sudden into an endothelial problem. And so why were the cardiovascular disease, the diabetes people, the obese people, the ones that were having higher mortality and being hospitalized? Because they already have oxidative stress. They don't have as much ACE2 receptor 
to, to help fight this problem. And, and so then you go back to this, what does ACE2 do? ACE2 basically decreases oxidative stress. It takes down free radical production. And so we needed to start looking at, does BFR, does exercise in general, increase oxidative stress? Because if these oxidative stressed out people are dying from this, then we need to look as, as rehab professionals at interventions that, are, that have less oxidative stress. And so that was kind of the second part of, of my and Dr. Kalen's talk. And you, and you made a nice little picture. I like, I'm, I'm a simple guy. I like pictures. Uh, we had a talk with some pediatric therapists yesterday that are doing some ACL work and they had a, uh, a very funny um, OmniRes picture that you'll have to listen to that podcast to, uh, to hear our conversation around that. But pictures are great. And, and Larry, you, you referenced a, a, a picture um, more, almost more, it was more of an animation, I think in, um, was it Dr. Treader's presentation? Is it Treader's? Oh, Tepper. Uh, Tepper. Yeah. There you yeah. go. Um, he, he had a nice, you know, he kind of described this animation as sort of what happens with, um, gas exchange and, and that sort of thing. And then you had some additional kind of thoughts off of that. So, um, you want to maybe describe that for our listeners? Cause they may not, that's one, that's like, that was the very first First one. Piece project release, I believe, was, was yeah. Steve Tepper's um, yeah. kind of went into the, the, the pathophysiology of it. Yes, yeah, Steve's a good guy and he's a smart guy and did a very nice job using the Wasserman and Whip uh, gear schema that presents essentially the way that oxygen may travel you know, through the lungs, then through the circulation um, to the muscle. And then there's a, at the end of that particular diagram, how the mitochondria respond to that and then the removal of carbon dioxide through the same series of gears um, and underneath that particular uh, gear schema um, in one of the um, renditions of this particular figure they provide a listing of where disorders or diseases can occur and unfortunately that interface as well as underneath each of those gears you see many of the things that Johnny just talked about as disorders and diseases that um, unfortunately make that person with COVID-19 that much more susceptible and much more unable now to deal with mitochondrial proper mitochondrial activity and therefore uh, impairing the person in many ways that Johnny's already you know talked about. In addition, um, I think you know an important thing that Johnny did present is that endothelial expression and how BFR does seem to improve it. And there was a nice paper out of Brazil that looked at. Um, ACE2 deficient individuals and the way that that affected their heart, the way that it affected their function and their performance. And what they found essentially was that the hearts pumped poorly if they had a decrease in the ACE2 expression. And they also found that activity levels uh, were markedly less than those who were not deficient of ACE2. So I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's an important thing. And um, I've just been really amazed at the literature and the way by which I think uh, that particular effect really seems to be facilitated with BFR in a way that I think really could favorably help the person, maybe even in the intensive care unit, and certainly for the person who's post-COVID um, from the intensive care unit, uh, where they need to gain the strength, the hypertrophy of the skeletal muscle, but also the improvements that are, are I think, uh, going to occur within the endothelium and then subsequently muscle. Yeah, and you and, and uh, you, both of you kind of touched on the the disuse sort of aspect that's going to go along with the 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 PICS patient, um, and, and I think something that we maybe forget. I think you know we on our podcast have hammered it 
over and over again and in all the courses that we teach and the blogs that we write that this disuse state is it's it's still load it's just a lack of load um and the body adapts to that skeletal muscle responds to that and you you had kind of talked larry you know it's not just skeletal muscle it's it's endothelium there, there are other structures that are responding it's the heart muscle so maybe you want to talk a bit about about the the, the disuse response to these tissues as well yeah no it's, it's a great question and thank you for reminding me um the point I wanted to make earlier uh, is that certainly if the respiratory muscles are not used and or disease bears its ugly head, um, you will find a change in the muscle fiber type. And in individuals with COPD and individuals with heart failure, and I suspect COVID-19, there's likely going to be a greater expression of type 1 muscle fibers and fewer type 2. Um, and we see this certainly in heart failure and COPD. And what that means essentially is that the person with uh, COPD or heart failure, when they need to take a good, strong, powerful inspiration or expiration, they can't do it because they don't have the generating capacity. They've lost those muscle fibers. So they have an adaptation that occurs just to keep them alive, moving their muscle fiber type to a more aerobic type one, but they, they then lack the power. So I think for that patient population, there might be a need to really strengthen them, to get them stronger, to improve their power, to improve their ability to take that full deep breath and remove secretions if they're there. Otherwise, they may have to be intubated and uh, maybe put back into an intensive care unit. Um, and it's different from what we see in the peripheral muscles, as you guys know. Um, when a person is atrophied uh, peripherally compared to the respiratory muscles, we typically find that they actually move from more of a type one to type two and they lose that aerobic capacity, yet that type two muscle is not doing what it should do. It doesn't have the capacity, doesn't have the actual size, the, the circumference of that particular, this, the, the CSA, this, uh, the surface area is less, and the person cannot generate the pressure that we need to do that powerful activity, and therefore we need to do something like BFR. So, Yeah, that, that's a cool point that you made, Larry, because when you were talking about the shift towards type one, I was like, wow, that's interesting because like in a spinal cord injury, for example, we see a shift towards like the type two X, this very hyper anaerobic muscle fiber. Um, and really the, I mean, I, I, I would surmise that the reason is because you've kind of lost some blood flow to the limb. That tissue is just trying to survive. I mean, yep. and, 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 and essentially, and I always kind of go back to like, look, we're just with exercise. We're, we're trying to tell our bodies it's not good enough, you know, and bodies need some level of stress to respond to. Uh, and at some level, it's like, a, a, it's a life or death kind of situation for, for, we're trying to induce at a low level to push these people farther. And that's, of course, our job in rehab is to find that, that point at which this person can't do this and approach it enough for a long enough and frequent enough that our tissues respond. So, I mean, in that vein, I would maybe kind of go down this road of, all right, the heck does this look like? You know, how, let's say we're in the ICU and I'm a physical therapist and, and this would be for you, Larry, as well as Johnny. What do I do? You know, I go in there, I'm, I'm, I'm thrown into this situation because we have this horrible pandemic that's, that's, that's really kind of affecting all these people. Um, where does my head need to go in terms of what's happening, pathophysiolo 
patheo pathophysiologically. I have to slow it down a little bit. <laughs> um, and, and, and in terms of just the disease, but then also in terms of our, our muscle and our heart muscle, our, our diaphragm, our skeletal muscle, that kind of thing. Um, why don't we kind of roll down that road of, all right, here's what rehab really looks like. This is, this is our fantasy land based upon what we feel like we kind of know. This is ideal. Johnny, you want to go first? Yeah, so I think, and I, and I laid it out at the end of, of our talk of like, I think this would be progressions. Um, we know disuse happens quickly. Um, within the first week, you've, you know, in a healthy model, you've already lost probably three pounds of muscle of, of one week of bed rest. And we can only imagine in, in these compromised individuals, and it's hard to get it back. And the, and the longer you're in the ICU, the more muscle you're going to lose. It's pretty obvious. And, and there's some striking photos of people post ICU of how much they've lost. So it's always easier to slow it down and then get it back than to lose it all and try and get it back. So you know, again, I'm very used to blood flow restriction. I talk with people all over the world that are doing it and use it in these type of different scenarios. And so for me, getting into an acute care setting, potentially even in an ICU setting and just doing some sort of passive blood flow restriction, I think, you know, it might be a burden, but some sort of get a tourniquet on, um, probably a high occlusion, 80 to 100 percent occlusion um, and use some sort of stem to get a muscle contraction on that patient. Um, that we can at least fight off disuse. You know, we've got the healthy models that have shown that. We've got, you know, some clinical models that have shown that BFR in the absence of exercise looks like it can slow the atrophy train. Um, that might be a remote ischemic preconditioning type effect. We're not real sure. Um, but if you add a little bit of stimulus to it, then we might also see that we have less of this free radical production. If you just put a tourniquet on, so if you measure free radical production, and then you put a tourniquet on and you take it up to full occlusion, you see an increase in free radicals. If you exercise at light level, you'll see an increase of free radicals. But if you see exercise at light level with a tourniquet on, we see a decrease in free radicals. And so then in those individuals, again, they're oxidatively stressed, which is just destroying the endothelium. If we're able to get a tourniquet on and do light level exercise, we might be getting some bang for our buck of slowing down atrophy, but also having less of free radical load while we're doing it. So I would think if you could get in at least daily or morning and afternoon for that kind of session in the ICU, that would be the study I would be very interested in seeing. There's already a trial in Brazil that looked at it, um, a little bit wonky, um, but still it, it, overall pr pretty decent. And they just did blood flow restriction passively like that and did passive range of motion. And over time, the, 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 the folks that were in comas that did that had less muscle loss overall compared to the control group. So it's been done. It wouldn't be like, oh my God, no one's ever done this before. It's, it's in a published trial that showed it's beneficial. Um, from that point, then as soon as they're able to start moving, that's when you either get it on and you do low level things like trying to walk or, or, or do uh, mat type exercises with it. Um, and then hopefully if, if they can get out of the hospital and get out to outpatient therapy and do BFR how we would typically do it. Some, some light, light load type stuff. And the progressions, again, would be in the ICU, in the acute setting, frequent, BID or daily. And then once they're out a couple times a week, you know, hopefully if they're able to do that, and, and then maybe we would get them over the hump. Yeah. What do you think, Larry? Yeah, no, I, I agree 100% in terms of the BFR um, and everything that you just uh, discussed. 
And, you know, from breathing perspective, if a person's in the intensive care unit on a mechanical ventilator, if they are stable, uh, whether it's COVID-19 or something else, there is a pretty good literature. Well, I should say, if they're stable um, and they are, let's just say, having difficulty weaning from a mechanical ventilator, or you want to facilitate that, it might be helpful to do inspiratory muscle training. There have not been any studies in patients with COVID-19, but there's a pretty good literature that shows that individuals, if you do some inspiratory muscle training, you're very likely going to improve uh, that, or you might say lessen the atrophy, like Johnny said, and maybe even improve the strength so that the person now can come off the mechanical ventilator and breathe on their own. Um, because you know the, the positive pressure ventilation that the mechanical ventilator provides is not negative pressure breathing, which is how we breathe. It's positive pressure. It's almost like doing CPR, inflating the person's lungs, and it then allows the diaphragm to go into its more shortened, contracted position, but passively. And so that, that same atrophy occurs pretty quickly after a person's placed on a mechanical ventilator. And so I think you know, trying to, if the person is, again, is stable, especially with COVID-19, um, trying to elicit a little bit of uh, a decrease, you might say, in the atrophy, and maybe improving the strength and the breathing of a person might be beneficial. And um, I think, you know, from um, related studies, it appears also that um, some of the effects of inspiratory muscle training are not that different from what we have heard Johnny talk about in regards to modulating the autonomic nervous system, improving uh, peripheral blood flow. Um, it also decreases inflammation and oxidative stress. And there also is a training effect upon the heart. And um, I talked about it a little bit in my presentation. I think these are all important things to think about whether you're in that intensive care unit or not, and to try to facilitate a little bit greater strength, endurance, power um, in that person in regards to their breathing that will hopefully carry over into all the things that uh, we've discussed. And one final point, um, you know, bringing the two worlds even closer together in regards to hypoxia, uh, Tim Mickleborough in Indiana uh, published a nice paper last year where he actually took a hypoxic condition, uh, put individuals, if I'm not mistaken, into uh, a high altitude chamber and had them do inspiratory muscle training compared to a group that were just inspiratory muscle training on land, uh, not in that chamber. And what he found was that hypoxic condition stimulated more improvements in those individuals than what they found on land, uh, improving the strength, the endurance, the power of their inspiratory uh, muscles. And um, I think it's an, uh, an important concept to think about. When I first heard Johnny talk, I thought, how can I do this to the respiratory muscles? I can't put a cuff around the <laughs> neck. That wouldn't be a good thing. Um, so, you know, I kept trying to think. And, you know, one of the things I think may occur though is there it seems to be a systemic effect from bfr and maybe if you did combine bfr or if you did bfr after uh, i'm sorry if you did inspiratory muscle training after bfr or mm -hmm. before i think it could be beneficial and maybe elicit some greater improvement in the respiratory muscles there's yeah. certainly been a few papers that have kind of given some nods to something something happening systemically for sure but certainly very nuanced as well um I, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Larry, just kind of sticking with the, the inspiratory muscle conversation, when, when people go on ventilators, it's pretty common that they are put on some kind of a, an inhibitor. I don't know if it's a paralytic or, or what have you, but something to, to essentially kind of allow that positive pressure because we do typically have a negative pressure type situation. So you would, you would end up getting disuse just because of that, I would, I would imagine, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and all the muscles, you know, the peripheral, the all, all the muscles, for sure. 
Um, yeah. And I, I think, you know, the, uh, the example that Johnny talked about with this Brazilian study where they just did passive BFR, um, a really um, nicely performed study, it seems. And I think it definitely has some relevance to those patients within the intensive care unit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and I just think it's just so key for us to be as PTs and, and even our athletic trainers and various other people that, that end up working with patients in a rehab capacity that we really kind of understand that this disuse situation is a, is a problem and we need to be conversive when, when we, with regard to it, we need to kind of understand these numbers that, that we always kind of highlight in our courses and how quickly this muscle loss happens and how quickly that associated strength loss goes with it. Um, and because if we kind of understand those things and we're intervening in those manners and we understand how long do you have to do this and how frequently, then we can have conversations and we can start really trying to create what I call Kyle's fantasy land where we get to manage these people in a way that really causes some change for them. And, 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 and then maybe who knows, you know, like, it's like, well, this research study, it's daily because we know now you really have to do it that often that this exercise prescription of twice a week is insufficient, but we definitely don't get there. If we, if we don't really understand what's going on, I think on our end, just a lay clinician, I don't think we get there. I don't think we get there if we're not asking for it, you know, if we're just kind of saying uh, we're okay with two times a week, well, I'm not, I'm actually kind of not okay with it. I think there are people that need it more often. Um, yeah. and, and these athletes get it. Why, why shouldn't my grandmother get it? If she, right. if she needs it, whether it be outpatient physical therapy or, or, or inpatient acute care, I, you know, I think it's, it's time at some point that we start kind of standing up and going, well, hang on a second, you know, like how come they get it? But, but, but we don't, you know, so, well, Kyle, you know, and here's that's what my I, soapbox a little bit. Sorry, but I, I think we've always been going at it the wrong way. You know, yeah, um, amen, a hundred percent. Yeah, agreed. It's been well. Let's restore them back to this level of function. You know, let's get let's see if we can get them to do this little task, even if it's only at seventy five percent of what they could do before. And the, and the reason why drug companies, you know, they they own the planet with this stuff is a lot of times they're like, well, you can do this and it will help slow disease or reverse disease. And so a lot of times when I'm looking for new studies and, look, and working with groups, um, we've been looking at like, can this be something that can heal bone? You know, so then we can say, well, they need to come to therapy because we can actually make their bone heal. Um, and I, I think that's where we're going with this with the oxidative stress people. You know, there's this ACE2 is so valuable to reduce free radical production. It basically breaks down the oxidative stress that all these people have, Parkinson's, um, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, they have oxidative stress. And lots of times that's what's killed them. It's destroying their endothelium and the cardiovascular disease is getting worse. And so, you know, in, in my talk, I had a, a, is out of the American Journal of Physiology, their heart and, and um, cardiovascular section, it, it, a paper that it was, you know, we need to look at ACE2 treatment-based approaches for vascular disease and cardiac problems. Um, so they're saying that drug companies need to find a way to increase ACE2 somehow to help these people. And that's where something like Kyle Hackney's group, that paper they put out is beautiful. Because um, it said, you know, after 30 minutes of doing BFR, you saw this really significant rise in ACE2 quickly after one session at 80% limb occlusion pressure. And you saw this big rise in the, the vascular progenitor stem cell. That now we can start saying, yeah, they need to come to us because we are, we're helping try and reverse their disease. 
And, and we have ever had that kind of platform to talk about. And now this is such a big thing where we're getting so many people talking about it, these big labs doing it. And Kyle's paper just won June best of the best from the American Physiological Society, a best paper um, to come out. And so that gets attention. And, and I think we have to start approaching it from that. Yeah, really, really good points. And I, I think um, you actually identified an article that was important for me that was the fourth BFR study in patients with heart disease. And you sent that to me last week, Johnny. And um, it's, it's nice because it demonstrates what we've talked about in the past, whether it's been at CSMs or just doing chats like this, um, is that you know when you release that cuff, whether it's between sets or let's just say it's after you do that 30, 15, 15, 15, you actually find um, that increase in blood flow to the periphery now that actually causes um, nitric oxide levels to increase because of sheer stress. And you have massive vasodilation that is the same thing doctors use to treat heart disease. And so yeah. in the study, this most recent study, um, again, there were no complications in people with heart disease and it found improvements in blood pressure over the long term and acutely, and also um, improvements in some of the other inflammatory markers and oxidative stress things that we've talked about and you've talked about in your presentation. So yeah. I think you know, there's, there, there's evidence that it can be done in these patient populations safely and that it can be beneficial in many different ways. And in some ways, maybe the exact same way that doctors treat some of these disorders. Exactly. I think we go at it like that. And like, yeah, by the way, we might, it looks like we can reduce blood pressure or, you know, if the German Diabetes Center comes out, it looks like we can reduce insulin levels or yeah, it looks like we can reduce oxidative stress and improve these people's endothelium. And oh, and extra, they get some muscle um, from it, you yeah. know, along with it. It's like a win-win and, you know, everything else they can do while they're seeing us. And so we just need more and more of these funded big trials um, to, to help fight our fight. And, and I think that's where Annie Baines' Parkinson's study, I talk about at the very end that, that we worked with, with her, and she's awesome, yeah. um, was so perfect because it took all these kind of concepts and it said, okay, now let's look at diseased individuals who had terrible vasculature. You know, their endothelium was just a, a hot mess. They got purple hands. Um, they lifting heavy looks like it helps functionally for Parkinson's people, but you know what? It doesn't look like it does great things for their vasculature. It makes it kind of worse. And she showed that and when they lifted heavy, it got worse. If they did one month of BFR, it, it significantly improved their endothelium. They had an angiogenic effect. Um, you know, they, they got stronger as well. So it was just like, boom, 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 one, two punch. You, you know, apparently the, subject, like, apparently the subjects were coming back saying, when can I start doing this again? Kind of thing. Yeah. They're like, when is so, the next trial? You know, or like, if you're getting yeah, buy-in from your patient. Yeah, yeah. You know, but you know, and, and one of our conclusions was this might be, these people need to come in once a month or uh, I mean, for a month, a year, just to get some endothelial work from us which I don't think anyone other than maybe your folks, Larry, have thought about like, yeah, they yeah. need to come see us to get their endothelium worked on. Cause that, that's, that's a bigger problem. I mean, the more I've gotten into it, it's like, holy shit. They, oh, damn it, Kyle. You gotta, there we go. You gotta put the yeah, E on there. The, here we go. But yeah, this, the endothelium is the problem in these people. For sure. Yeah. No, I think, and, and, and that, that study Johnny's talking about, we're going to, we're going to bring Annie on the podcast at some point. And Larry, we might just get you to come on that one too. That would, that would be a fun conversation. Um, Cause she's uh, certainly very passionate and has done a very cool study through. Um, and Larry knows Annie now. We yeah, we, we, yeah. 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 We did a call. She's a good, good person. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome, and and a TV star now too. Yeah, from what I understand, really? they're going to be on the yeah. They, so her the gym that she and her husband own are on what's the what's the new cult the, Mag, the, the Chip and Joanna Gaines. Yeah, Magnolia. <laughs> the Magnolia. Yeah. The, the Magnolia <laughs> cult down in Waco. Yeah, um, <laughs> they have a new. Uh, that's great. TV yeah. channel, and so she they're they're featuring Annie's gym. That's I told her, I was like, Annie, don't give up on research. You're too good. Yeah. You know, yeah. don't, don't become a, a reality show star. No, exactly. <laughs> and she did, she submitted to CSM, I believe. Um, and then I think in the neuro section, to, I think nice. she submitted right. to do like a platform talk or, or something. Good, good, to that. Good. So she might, she might actually be presenting this year. I don't, I haven't heard anything, but I can check in with them because her, one of her colleagues out there in Abilene, Jill Jumper is a good friend of mine. She was my classmate. In, in PT school at Hardin Simmons University, so um, well, some very if she very cool stuff. Reach out to her because I'll I'll bring her in yeah. on my platform. Well, I was um, thinking that I was thinking yeah. that too. We'll find that out yeah. and cool. um, and and really work if we if we have CSM. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> fingers. Knock on wood. Fingers crossed. All of that. Well, guys, I think this was an awesome. This is an awesome talk. I think our listeners will really enjoy it. And you guys, if you if you did listen and you haven't seen Larry's Pacer Talk and Johnny's Pacer Talk, please go over to the YouTube channel um, for the the cardiovascular and pulmonary section of the APTA. Or or you can go through the Learning Center on APTA's website and you can get free CEUs by watching those uh, talks. And then I'm assuming you have to answer quizzes and, and things. Yeah. Like yeah. Like that. yeah. Larry just submitted our questions today. So, oh, good. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Nice. yeah. Yeah. And we'll put all the links. answers C. Did you make all the answers C, Larry? It's all B. It's all, all B. Okay. B. So now you know if you <laughs> if you listen to the end, you know how to pass the test. <laughs> it's all B. <laughs> we get some angry viewers or listeners I know, really, back yeah. and they're like, that wasn't right. But, <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of Larry's and I'm proud of Larry's work he did with me. So, I really hope people, it, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of deep stuff, but I think people should really take these in. Um, it's, it's interesting stuff. And you, pre you presented it beautifully. I mean, the, the progression, the, the content and the, just the way everything developed uh, throughout it was great. Almost like a, a movie. <laughs> well, that was Kyle's graphics. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> My animation hole that I went down. We'll put uh we'll put links to all of them in our show notes here. Yeah. So people can go to it. Okay. Cool. Yeah. We'll, we'll do that. Well, Larry, Johnny, thanks for coming on uh, the Owens Recovery Science Podcast with Kyle Kimbrell. I uh, really appreciate y'all participating in this episode. And uh, you guys stay safe. Thanks, Kyle. Cool. Thanks, Kyle. See you later, Larry. See you, Johnny. Take care, you guys. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.